Good morning, everyone. It is uh, great to be here with you this morning. I wish I could be there with you at Gilna Herc in person. Uh, although I realized as I thought about it a bit that if I was there in person, it would probably just be Drew and me in the building and all the rest of you would be uh, safely at home. So uh, maybe it's better to do it this way. Seriously, I am really grateful for your church. Um, Emma and I and the kids love being there, there with you and we're able to. And I am very grateful for Drew. He and I have had some great connection over this COVID-19 season. And I'm just so thankful. I know you are, too, for the man of God he is and the way he, God's gifted him to preach clearly and faithfully and truthfully from the Bible and to shepherd the flock there at Gilner Herc. So uh, we will we'll, we'll gladly take this second best option of being with you uh, digitally, remotely. I want to speak to you um, in this very kind of unusual and difficult time for our world. And uh, we all know COVID-19 is a terrible reality. I'm praying against it. I'm praying that God will enable scientists to develop a vaccine. I'm praying that he'll heal those who have it, that he'll slow the spread. And we're all praying for those who whose jobs have been affected, who are out of work or um, who are, you know, experiencing less income than they normally would. COVID-19 is an enemy. But like every enemy of God, it cannot undo his sovereign will. It cannot thwart his sovereign plan. It can't help, it cannot avoid being a part of what God is doing in the world. Um, I, I think back to what the early Christians prayed in Acts chapter 4. They prayed, Sovereign Lord, Truly in Jerusalem there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So just listen to that prayer. Listen to the theology behind that prayer. Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews were sinning, clearly, in putting Jesus to death. But at the very same time, they were doing whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. And we can say the very same thing about COVID-19. It's an evil enemy, but it is doing whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. I'm confident that there are many things God is doing today that we have no clue about. And we just see kind of the outskirts of his ways. But one of the, the good things I do see is that COVID-19 has some of us thinking more about the realities of death than we usually do. Strikes me that Western cultures generally avoid this topic of aging and dying when we can. But right now, many of us just can't. It's all around us. Either we see it ourselves or we see it on the news, on the Internet. In the U.S., thousands of people are dying every day. In our church, three folks have lost their parents uh, to COVID-19. And I know it's having an impact in Northern Ireland as well. I do want to speak this morning about aging and dying. And it's very fresh, very real for me just this morning a dear woman in our church, a friend of many years now for me, passed away and is now with Jesus. Uh, today is also the anniversary of the tragic motorcycle death of a young man who grew up in our congregation, one of the 
hardest funerals I've ever led. Uh, really, one of the privileges of being a pastor is getting to walk alongside folks through the, the many seasons of life, including that final season as they enter advanced age and then they wrestle with the joys and opportunities and privileges, but also the pains and the difficulties and sadnesses and indignities of aging. And it's striking to me how people uh, approach and respond to aging so differently, so variously, how widely varying, in fact, are the effects that aging has on people. Certainly has become clearer to me over the years that there is nothing about aging that necessarily brings growth in character and kindness and godliness. In fact, very often can have just the opposite effect. Uh, aging and all the all the accompanying problems, physical problems and aches and pains can often reveal character defects that were kind of hiding below the surface but now rise to the surface when the pressure of aging is on. When we're relatively comfortable, when health is good, we might be in a good mood, not because we're godly, but simply because we're comfortable. Our character wasn't really tested before. And I've known a number of retirement communities where slander and meanness and gossip are just rife, where pettiness is pervasive and people's worlds are radically diminished and they're sort of absorbed with themselves and with their own little community and where folks are cranky and bitter and difficult as they age. And then on the other hand, I've known some whose worlds just seem to expand the older they get. They they grow to love God more fervently and to love and serve other people more generously I've known people who seem to become more kind and peaceful and resilient as they grew older, not less. Another privilege um, I have as a pastor is being called alongside deathbeds and having the opportunity to sit and talk and pray with those who are dying. I was just with this dear sister in our church a couple days ago as she grew closer to death. And in my experience, what's true of aging is also true of dying there is this wide range of experiences of it. So I've sat beside quite a number of deathbeds. It's striking to me how different they are from one another. I've been with some folks who died suddenly. They weren't even aware of what was happening. Uh, some who were very, very fearful and anxious. Others who died peacefully. They were anticipating heaven. They were confident of God's care and provision. It's just a very wide range of responses and experiences. And I think it's really important for all of us, whether we're on the younger end of the age spectrum or the older end, to be giving thought and prayer to that final season of life, to aging and dying. You might think if you're younger, it'll never happen to me. Well, unless Jesus returns, it will. And the Puritans talked about dying well. One Puritan, Edmund Barker, said this, Every Christian hath two great works to do in the world, to live well and to die well. There are various ways God helps us to prepare to age and to die well. So God can use ill health to get us thinking and praying about these things. I spoke with a friend not long ago who generally is in very, very good health, and she had this pretty severe, totally unexpected health crisis. And she told me later that even though it had been a super difficult time in her life, it was actually beneficial because it had got her thinking about becoming older 
and dying. Uh, one of the main ways I've sought to grow in my own understanding of the, the latter years of life is simply to ask older people, older friends, what it's like for them. You know, if there's a country that you know you're planning to visit at some point in the future, hopefully well after COVID-19, but another country, not your own, you're planning to visit, uh, one of the best ways to prepare to go to that country is to talk to people who have been there. Uh, if you're going to plan a visit, you want to know what's the food like and what's the, what's the weather like? What should I pack? What should I wear? How should I get there? Where should I go when I do? And it's the same with the, the foreign country for many of us of aging and dying. We should talk to those who are there already, those who have been there before us. Over the years, I've spoken to my grandparents many times, asking them questions. And, and not long ago, I was speaking to another friend who's older and just asking him questions. It really strikes me that if we're going to ask those kinds of personal questions, we must be in relationship with those we're asking the questions of. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful at our church we experience the, the benefits and joys of intergenerational friendships where younger folks are good friends and in regular contact in small groups with those who are seniors. And I know you have, at Gilner Herc, you have many of those same sorts of intergenerational friendships. I've seen them in our visits with you, and I, I rejoice in that. I think it's so important for the body of Christ to, to facilitate and encourage those sorts of friendships. Another way to prepare for aging and dying is to read good books about it. And I found particularly helpful a few books. Uh, Rob Mall's book, The Art of Dying, is really helpful. J.I. Packer's book, Finishing Our Course with Joy. And Mark Ashton's book, On My Way to Heaven. There are many other good ones as well, but those three in particular have helped me. You know, some of us aren't in the preparation stages. We're already in that final season of life. And certainly the most helpful way to walk through that season and to prepare for it before we get there is to soak ourselves in the promises of God that are found in the Bible. The most helpful way to prepare for that season and to live through it well for the glory of God is to believe and treasure and lean upon and trust what God tells us about his care for us as we get older and as we come to that last day when we draw our final breath. So I want to look at two verses this morning in the sermon, just two verses. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 3 through 4. Um, in this portion of scripture, God is speaking specifically to his people Israel, his covenant people. But these verses, I think, are applicable to us as well if we're part of God's new covenant people, those who are saved through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I want to read these verses and then highlight four ways in which they give us hope and comfort in the process of aging and dying. As the people of God, we don't need to ignore or minimize this subject. We can embrace it because we have God's promises. So Isaiah 46, verses 3 through 4. Here's God's word. God speaks. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. 
I will carry and will save. Because God is speaking here to the nation of Israel, at least to the remnant of Israel, it might be that the birth and the old age he mentions are used somewhat figuratively, metaphorically, to refer to the formation of the people of Israel, sort of the birth of the nation, and then to their later maturity as a people. But even if that's the case, I think God's promises here apply to individuals within the nation as well, to their individual births and experiences of old age and their individual deaths. And I see four spectacular realities affirmed in these two verses. They can help us as God's new covenant people as we struggle and as we sometimes suffer even in some cases with aging and dying. So let's look at each of those four encouragements in turn. Number one, God's unceasing care. And this is in verse three. In verse three, God speaks. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth carried from the womb. Now, the key question to ask here is, why does God bother to describe his people in verse 3? He doesn't need to do that. He could just call them Jacob or Israel, and then he could move on to the promises in verse 4. But notice in verse 3, before he gets to the verse 4 promises, he, he takes some time to describe who his people are. They are a people who have been born by me, by God, from before their birth, carried from the womb. In other words, God's people have always been a carried people. From before they can remember, from before birth, literally the Hebrew phrase is from the belly. In other words, from their mother's belly. That far back, God has carried them. Now think about what it means to be carried. It's not really an experience that very many adults have anymore. We don't we don't generally have living memories of being carried. I was certainly carried as a little kid, but I don't actually remember totally what it felt like. And if anyone tried to carry me now, I think they'd throw their back out. So I don't I don't have an experience of being carried. But to be carried is to be completely, utterly dependent on the strength of another person. In many ways, it's to be vulnerable to that person, because if they drop you, you're a goner. There are some dads in our congregation who have kind of perfected this one-handed hold of their kids. So they, they know how to hold their kids up high above their head and then swivel and drop them and catch them before they hit the ground. And uh, I admire those dads. I confess there have been times when I've been playing with my kids a couple times when I've dropped them, I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> And then felt terrible about it. God is not like that. God has never once dropped his kids. He has carried them since before they were born. The reason God begins this way, I think, in verse 3, by describing Israel as a carried people, is to emphasize to them his unceasing care. So he's always carried them. He has a perfect track record. They can trust him in the future because of what they've already experienced from him in the past. Having cared for them unceasingly, he's certainly not going to stop now. When Emma and I walked across the Carricka Reed rope bridge years ago, I was 
doing what many of you have done. I was looking straight down 100 feet and my legs were shaking. And, you know, if you've done it, after you get out to that little island, you really have no choice. Uh, you've got to turn around and walk back over the bridge. And on the way back, I was nervous, but I was actually a little bit more confident because I knew that the bridge had held me on the way over. Its odds of holding me on the way back were vastly increased in my mind. And this is the way God works. He strengthens our faith in him for the day of our death by reminding us that he's cared for us from before the day of our birth. His track record grows our faith. Now, there's a crucial comparison and critique that's lying just below the surface of verse 3. And I want you to see it. God uses two important words in verse 3. He says, you have been born by me and you have been carried by me. And forms of those same words are used just two verses earlier in verse 1. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. So get the picture here. Bel and Nebo were two of the main Babylonian gods. And their idols were paraded around on one of Babylon's main holidays, New Year's Day. So verses 1 to 2 say, These idols cannot save the people in a day of crisis. Instead, they themselves will go into captivity right alongside the people they're supposed to be helping. And here's the comparison and the critique. In verse 3, God says, I've always borne and carried you. In verse 1, God says, rather than carrying you, the idols and the false gods are themselves carried as burdens on weary beasts. They're helpless. You must carry them rather than the other way around. I just think it's so important for us to hear this critique because, you know, admittedly, our culture doesn't generally go in for gods of stone or iron, but we have many idols. We have many false gods who promise to help us either to forget aging and dying or even a triumph over them. I mean, this this area of aging and dying is, is rife with cultural idolatry today. There's the idol of looking so good that people won't even know you're aging. You know, that's the hope of cosmetics. It's the hope of an eternally fit body, of wrinkle-free skin, of, you know, 70-year-old men who can do 100 push-ups. And it's a very old idol. It's the mythical fountain of youth. There's the hope of possessions, the idol of possessions, of of owning a grand enough house or enough toys that we seem younger and happier and cooler than we actually are. This is the kind of stereotypical red sports car of middle-aged guys like me. We drive around when we, we try to pretend we're younger than we are. There's the hope of a perfect retirement where we can indulge all those desires and whims and relax 24-7, finally get to enjoy the pleasures that we couldn't because of the rat race of life with a career and kids. But here's the thing. These idols are false gods, and they will never be able to carry us through aging and dying. When it comes to getting older, when it comes to our deathbed, those idols will drop us. They will not be able to carry us. 
we, just the opposite, we will need to carry them. We'll, we'll need to spend gobs of money on surgery or products to last, to, to look young forever. You know, if we start down that road, we're going to pump more and more money and thought and care and resources into staying looking young. It will take and take and take. That's what idols do. They promise and then they take from us. Even if we get rid of all those wrinkles, all the extra work that's been done to get rid of the wrinkles will probably wind up making us look sort of unnatural and then we'll need to throw more money at solving that problem. It just doesn't work. We'll wind up serving our idols, giving to them, beefing up our body or helping our appearance or increasing our possessions or whatever it is. And all the time there will be ever diminishing returns. The idols we worship will never make good on their promises. God does make good on his promises. God carries us. And that's the critique here. That's the contrast. God carries us. Idols must be carried. God serves us. Idols must be served. And God's care for us is unceasing. Just hear this. It's true for you, just like it was for Israel. God has always carried us. There's never been a time when he hasn't. So we can trust him that he'll continue to carry us, even into the unknown, where we've never yet been. Even in that last season of life, and even to the day of our death itself. God's track record with us is perfect. He's never dropped us. He's never going to. And there's a second sweet truth for us in this passage. It's in the first part of verse 4. It's God's unchanging being. So look again at verse 4a. God says, Even to your old age, I am he. The first truth in verse 3 is that God has always carried his people. And the second truth in verse 4a is that God's not going to change. He says, even to your old age, I am he. Now think about it. If God had a perfect track record of caring for, for us, but then he changed somehow, or he became different from who he had been, what he valued, what he did, we wouldn't be able to trust him for the future and for the unknown. And we know this kind of thing happens with some human fathers. They're great dads and husbands for a time. And then tragically, often it comes out of the blue. We have no idea why. They just go off the rails. They, they let, let, let their kids go or walk away from their spouse or they, they fail their employer in, in a big way. They change. And the beginning of verse 4 says that God is not like that. Even to your old age, I am he. He's the same forever. You, you can hear in that little phrase, I am he, echoes of God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 3. I am who I am. I am eternally self-existent, self-dependent, non-contingent. My faithfulness and power and character do not depend on anyone or anything outside of myself. When you're young, I am he. When you're old, I am he. On your deathbed, I am he. I never change. That's why we can trust in him. Let me ask you, have you tasted the kindness and care of God in your life? I want you just to, to pause for a moment here and think of a time when God, it was so clear to you at that time, God carried you. 
Um, he met your needs. You were struggling and he was there and you, you knew he was there. You felt he was there. That God who you remember carrying you will not change. He has not changed. He will be that same God as you get older and as you come to the day of your death. And I just find that so encouraging that God's love for us will be exactly the same. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The encouragements just keep on coming in these two verses. So I want to look at the second part of verse 4 for a third encouragement, which is God's unfading strength. Look at verse 4b. God says, And to gray hairs I will carry you. So it's not just that God has carried his people since before they've been born. It's not just that he will remain the same in power and in character. God now explicitly spells out the promise that he's going to keep on carrying his people even after they have gray hairs. You know, gray hair is frequently used in the Bible as a visible and concrete way of referring to old age. So God promises here that he will carry not just babies, but old people too. God's not like human fathers. Um, He doesn't age like we do. Unlike human fathers, he's never going to weaken or fail in strength. You know, there comes this kind of crucial point in time when our human fathers can no longer physically carry us. And I would say I'm just about right at that point now with my own kids. Um, It's really only on special occasions that I'll pick them up and carry them for a little while. Uh, There's this kind of combination of them getting bigger and me getting weaker. And many of you have experienced another crucial pivot point later in life with your parents when they stop being the main source of strength and support for you and you start being the main source of strength and support for them. You know, as they cared for you while you were young, you begin to care for them as they grow old. I just want you to hear this. None of that's true for God. God will never falter or fail. God's strength is unfading. There will never be a pivot point in our relationship with God when we stop needing his help and he starts needing ours. It's never going to happen. He will be strong enough to carry us until the very moment we die. Again, there's a biting critique of the false gods and idols here. God says, I will carry you. And that same word carry is used in verse 7 to describe an idol. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. The point is, false gods must be carried by us. But God will always carry us into our old age and until we die. To be carried is to be totally cared for. It's to be fully supported. It is to be enormously loved. Isn't it good to belong to one who who will carry and support us, to the one true and living God? Do you know yourself as carried, as supported, as fully loved? That's what God promises here. And finally, here's a fourth encouragement at the end of verse 4. It's God's unflagging 
commitment. Look at the very end of verse 4. God says, I have made and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. And this last part of the verse emphasizes God's unflagging commitment to his people. In fact, God repeats himself here. He's already said that he will bear and carry his people. And now he says it again. And the purpose of the repetition is to emphasize his commitment. He really means this. We can take these promises to the bank. We can trust them fully. There are a couple of new elements added here at the end of verse 4. Notice God says, I have made and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. He reminds his people that he has made them. That word made is used very often in the Bible, particularly in Isaiah, for God's work in creation. To take just one example, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, God says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth, by myself. So God has created his people. We are the work of his hands. And because of that, he's fully committed to us. He's not going to give up on us. Uh, he's going to stick with us to the end. Strikingly, that same word made is used frequently in the book of Isaiah to describe what humans do to idols. They make them. In fact, it's used that same way in this very context in verse 6. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. So do you hear the critique again of idols? Our God makes us. Idols are made by people. At the very end of verse 4, God says he will save us. And again, there's a clear comparison and critique here. Verse 2, describing idols, says they cannot save the burden. Verse 7 says, if one cries to an idol, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Idols will do us no good in life or in death. God alone can save. Now, here's where I want to land. You can see where our hope in life and death is, where it comes from, by simply looking for the pronoun I in verse 4. Notice how many times God repeats it. He says, I am he. I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. Our hope is in God alone, in his unceasing care, his unchanging being, his unfading strength, his unflagging commitment. And our prayer can be the same as the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 71, verse 9. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Or Psalm 71, verse 18. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. And we can know, even as we pray those prayers, that God will most certainly answer them. You know, God's promises to us, all of them, the Apostle Paul says, are yes and amen in Jesus. 
God will be faithful to us in our old age because Jesus died for us at a young age. Think about the fact that Jesus never lived to a ripe old age. He didn't die in his bed. He was crucified in the prime of his life for us. God will not forsake us at the moment of our death because he did forsake Jesus on the cross at the moment of his death. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was separated from the Father for our sin so that we will never, ever be separated from the Father, not even through death itself. We know that whether we live or whether we die, this is the book of Romans, we are the Lord's. So these two verses in Isaiah 46 tell us that God our Father carries us. It was really interesting for me as I was studying this passage some time ago to to discover that the servant figure of whom Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 53, who we know is ultimately Jesus, is said to carry and to bear certain things for us using the exact same language as this chapter, Isaiah 46. Here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. Surely the servant, suffering servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So hear this. Jesus, the God-man, carries and bears us by bearing our griefs and sorrows and sins in his body on the cross. He delivers us so that even our final enemy, death, is defeated. Death has lost its sting because it can no longer separate us from God. So, people of God, at Gilnerhurt Baptist, I want you to take hope. I pray that as you grow old, if God allows you that grace, that you will do so with confident assurance that God will never forsake you, no matter how difficult the aging is. I want to charge you to come to the day of your death, And know that God is there with you and through Jesus Christ will give you eternal life. In a time where there is much suffering and where there is dying, much death every day in the world, let's not ignore it. Let's not minimize it. Let's trust in God and look to his promises and even now be preparing for the day of our death so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your promises to us. I thank you for your steadfast love, for your never-ceasing care. And my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we will rest in you alone, that we will not look to the false gods of our culture, will not flee or ignore 
or minimize aging or dying. Instead, we will look to you and rest in you and trust in you. You, risen Christ, who are triumphant over death forevermore. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless each of you. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. Go in peace.